0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A crow has started hanging around on our back veranda at home. My nine-year-old has christened it platypus because, you know, what else would you call a crow? We feed it bits and pieces now and again, so it keeps coming back. And this has set off a whole backyard avian drama. Because a troop of noisy minor birds now attack the crow as soon as it lands on the veranda. In fact, the minor birds going crazy is usually the signal that the crow has turned up. And the crow croaks up at them as they swoop around and call it it. And it bobs its head at us sitting inside as if to say, look what I have to put up with to be here. And then this week things got even more exciting when a currawong flew down at the crow, pushed it out of the way and began hopping along the veranda railing itself as though it expected something to eat. All of this is one little illustration of the kind of interactions that are happening between humans and birds and between different species of birds in every Australian neighbourhood. Daryl Jones is a professor of ecology at Griffith University, and he has spent many years investigating the ways that people and wildlife interact. And why some bird species do so well in cities and suburbs. Bushchooks and bin chickens, you know who we are talking about. Darrell's latest book is a field guide. It's intended to help our species get a better understanding of all those birds that live around us. It's called Getting to Know the Birds in Your Neighbourhood. Hi, Daryl. Welcome back to Conversations. Hi,
1: Sarah. Wonderful to be here. So what do you
0: make of this bird drama that my son, my son and I seem to have instigated in our back veranda? Are all these species behaving the way that you would expect?
1: Yes, they're, all, they're doing exactly what they would normally do and interacting in the, in the usual way. But the fantastic thing is this is happening in, your, in the suburbs. You know, the suburbs, just a normal backyard area. And you've got three species interacting. They all think that they own the place. <laughs> And the Us crows,
0: included.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, but the noisy miners are intolerant of everything under the sun. You know, they'll, they'll have a go at anything. They've already excluded all the little birds. And then there's this big blackbird's turned up. And they think, what the hell's going on? We'll show it. And they're bullies because they only only beat people up when they're in a gang. I
0: don't understand why the crow is so scared. of it. It's so much bigger. Why doesn't it just take a
1: swoop at them? Yeah, I think that they just, you know, they just are irritating. You know, they're not exactly dangerous. And that because they're always, in, I saw this just exactly the same thing with a magpie just just yesterday, and I thought the magpie landed on a, on a line just in front of me, and then obviously, inevitably, you know, four or five noisy miners just turned up, and you could see the magpie going, "Oh, guys, why are we doing this again? You know, didn't we do this a thousand times already?" And so there's no kind of point to it, but it, it does illustrate that there's dramas going on in the backyards of every house, whether we like it or not. And
0: are the minor birds strategically trying to get that crow away from us and this potential food source? As
1: far as I can tell, and this might be anthropomorphising, as, sh- as you really should never do, but I, it's almost like they just don't like anybody else. They're just <laughs> universally haters. And so anyone, any sort of bird, you know, whether it's big, small or whatever, they'll just try and get rid of from their area.
0: They gang up on cats too. We've got two cats, and if one of their one of their colony has been injured they go crazy and keep that cat Absolutely. away and get it out it's well, clean, well that
1: astrology. makes perfect sense because that the the cat is a proper predator you know but the crows aren't really i mean they probably would have a go at the nest nestlings if they could but that doesn't usually happen very much, much with crows the crows are crows are there because they are everywhere in the in the city you know you just got you've got you'll have a pair for sure because everybody has a pair that they live in uh, but the interesting thing from that little anecdote that you showed was the arrival of the the carawong. Now, that carawong clearly has been fed. You know, it's expecting a handout from somebody somewhere up the, up the street and, they, and they'll give you a shot to see whether you um, know, what, know, know what to do. Yeah. So this
0: crow, when it's looking at me, what's it thinking or what's it seeing,
1: Darrell? We don't know and we will never know because we we're never going to be Dr. Doolittle. Um, we can't actually get into the into those heads, but we know that any bir- any bird that lives in the city with us has ha- had to overcome something really natural and really sensible, a sensible fear of humans, because we do nasty things to everything. You know, we eat them, then we hunt them, we chase them away, whatever's going on. But so they, in order to survive in the city, like any of those birds, they've lost all fear, so they're not scared of you at all. But they might be able to see. They might be thinking. Is there something I can get from you? And that's probably in the form of some sort of food. So, you know, that's probably what they're thinking. You've
0: been interested in crows and in their intelligence ever since you were a little kid and became the keeper of a crow that you called Lucifer. How did he come into your
1: life? Yeah, well, you're using the word crow, you know, in the usual fashion that all Australians do to refer to any of the corvids. So we have five species of corvids, which are the crows and ravens. And that one, that crow was actually an Australian raven. But and the just,
0: crows in my back garden are something else. The crows
1: they? here in, in Brisbane are Theresian crows. The crows in Sydney, for example, are also Australian ravens. And and depending on where you go, there are always crows in wherever you live, and they could be one of those five species. But yeah, but so Lucifer, um, he was caught stealing eggs from a, in a chookyard in a farm near, near where I lived in the bush in New South Wales. And instead of wringing its neck, the, the farmer's daughter said, no, no, don't ring its neck, Dad. I know a bloke who lo- will look after it, which was me, because I was owned, owned as the weird bird guy in my hometown. How
0: old were you at this point?
1: Uh, early teens, so 13 or 14 or something like this. And I was a, wasn't very experienced at doing these sorts of things, but I was willing to take on the, the role because I was just genuinely fascinated. I, I, at that stage in life, my dream was to become a zookeeper. And so I had a little zoo of my own. And so this was an addition, an exotic addition.
0: How did Lucifer feel about being Lucifer, in your zoo?
1: Yeah, the famous thing about Lucifer, I had him for probably four or five months. Not one second of that time did he ever show any, you know, gratitude for me looking after him and feeding him every day. So he never tamed down. So that was another, another thing. They, they are very smart birds and they manipulate us in all sorts of ways. They train us to do things but he never, it, I, eventually he escaped um, in, a, in a spectacular way. How? Well, I, have a, I had a dog, a much less intelligent animal than the, the crow, the, the raven. Um, and that, and it, it really did appear that the crow was going to use the dog to escape. And he did that by putting, putting bits of meat on the inside of the fence, inside of his, of his cage, just out of the reach of the of this corgi dog called Candy, <laughs> and Candy was like not real smart, and so Candy eventually tries to dig its way into the, into the meat underneath the cage, and and finally said, "No, I'm going to get it this time." Dug a hole underneath the cage. I don't know whether it ever got the meat because it, the hole when the hole was big enough for the crow to escape, it did. And Watch it, out, and Candy. It was gone. And Candy was going, "What
0: the hell happened?" <laughs> the fact that crows are so smart—I mean, what challenges does that pose for scientists trying to study them?
1: Oh my goodness! Oh, we we spent a decade trying to catch them. They are so smart. I, I, I have, and in, you know, I still wake up at night with a cold sweat when thinking. We, with my team of, of students and we would sit around thinking, this time the trap, the trap we've designed is foolproof. They will definitely get it. And then we'd look up into the trees and there'd be crows you know, looking down at us going, oh, I see what these guys are doing. You know, there's no way. We were never going to catch them. You How know.
0: did you end up? Getting well, any crows? It, it was, you as was, apex predator? You. It was
1: really tricky. Um, we found a really old um, description of a crow trap. It was literally called the, the It's called the Australian crow trap. It's it's effectively a, a, an aviary. You just build this huge aviary, with a, without a roof, and you feed the birds. You put whatever they want, and that's just any any sort of old meat or whatever you can find and you put it in the bottom of the aviary and, for, you know, and you leave it for weeks, you know, to let it just – everything to get used to it. The crows would eventually overcome their fear of this strange new thing. They'd see all the meat down below. They'd fly in, get the meat and fly out straight away. And so you had to be incredibly patient. Um, and so it took like six weeks or something before, before we put the roof back on. But the roof had a hole in it, and so they could still get out there. So they, they'd be used to the structure – then they would have the hole in the roof and they were still coming and going because it was a, every, day, every single night. They never We never let them see us. In the dark of the night, we would sneak in a big pile of meat. And then finally we did, In the last thing that we did was we put a funnel that down from the hole that was narrow at the end. So the crows went down, but they couldn't get, get back up. They just refused to get back up. And we caught, oh, you know, probably 30 or 40. I can't remember the exact number now. Um, and that was the, that was it. Well, because you,
0: you couldn't do that again. That... Well,
1: we caught them all, we processed them, we put transmitters on them, we did all the usual scientific things so that we could follow them around afterwards. But no, after that, it, news got out and there was no way we could ever catch them again. You know, it was just impossible. There was, they, well, every crow seemed to know then, around the whole of Brisbane what had happened and that that was never going to happen to them.
0: Don't that. be fooled by that pile <laughs> of rotting meat. So how how elaborately can crows communicate with one another?
1: Oh, well, that's extraordinary. So I have a student, Matt Brown, who did communication. He, he looked at the communication for, he, for his honours degree uh, and he was really interested in what the noises were. So when we think of, when we hear crows, we just hear ah, 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 and maybe a couple of other little blurby noises. Little clicks sometimes. But he, he discovered that they actually have sentence structure. They have genuine language. They have syntax and, and sentence structure and beginnings and endings to sentences and all that. They, they, it's, it, it's amazing. And that's we will taught, never know what they are.
0: That's taught, Daryl, or, or innate?
1: The ability to, to form this and and talk in this way and communicate in this way is certainly innate, but they would learn the, the language from hearing all the other crows around them. So crows are always cock um, social. They all, all crows appear, all the corvids, all live in groups and they l- learn from each other and they listen to each other and th- they would learn the language just like kids
0: what does scientists believe that that crows have been telling each other about cane toads
1: oh that's really interesting so cane toads are, you would think that you know that's a big it's a big animal and it, it represents quite a lot of food so and unfortunately lots of animals think the same thing and they get poisoned so they like for example snakes uh, um, which eat the, the whole thing just get poisoned and die because of the toxic glands on their on their shoulders, and so that was the that's the terrible thing. So, um, the crows somewhere in southeast Queensland, we think, at an early stage when the cane toads had uh, invaded this part of the world, learned that you could flip them over and eat them from the stomach up. So these are dead ones on the road, you know, just roadkill. They could flip them over, and that meant the the toxic glands were on the bottom of the of the thing, and then they could eat all the, the flesh and then carry on. So the the cane toads spread all the way up the coast of Queensland, all the way to the top. But there's a big gap in the middle where it, they didn't get across to, to Northern Territory at all. But eventually they finally got across somewhere. You know, it took, took a long time, maybe 10 or 15 years before they actually got across that gap of totally different type of habitat in the middle. And when they got there, this is the extraordinary thing, when they got there, the, the local crows up there, the also teresian crows, same species, knew exactly what to do, how to feed on them.
0: So they didn't just eat them whole. They did this flipping over so they weren't poisoned. they already knew.
1: It was almost like, oh, here comes the cane toads, like Uncle Fred told us about. If you ever see these cane toads, here's how you must feed them. Honestly, we genuinely think that's vital information for survival that carried through the entire communication system of the crows all the way to the Northern Territory.
0: So... That's crows out in the bush. What about crows in cities, Daryl? What's the biggest problem that humans tend to have with crows living in the same space as us?
1: Probably the noise they make. Um, I mean, if, if we're serious about all the different things they do, some things are good and some things are bad. But what we, a lot of people don't like crows. They're, they're black and horrible and they've got a nasty voice and all that sort of thing. And they come pre, pre-programmed with, with negative vibes. You know, they, they're hard to like, even though I really, I do, I I love really like crows. them as well. That's is there right. anything
0: that people can do successfully? You've had a few experiments to yes, try no, to move flocks right. so, on.
1: And that, this is the interesting thing, Sarah, that they in the city they form huge um, communal roosts of perhaps 300 sometimes of lots of crows all in one place roosting at, at night. And that's we now know that that's so they can... Get access to the food the next day. It's just a, it's a particular ploy in the bush. Those that the same species does not do it at all. There's no big groups like that. This is a city behaviour earned and and learned for city living. Are
0: they genetically the same? Those yes, those
1: they are. But species? but here's what's happening. There's something going on. One of the things that has occurred is that um, crows in. Southeast Queensland that live in the city, some of them early on probably about five or six years ago learned that they can build nests on buildings now that crows have been building nests on structures human structures like electricity poles and all those sorts of things but always away from town this is really different this is next to where people are um, they see people all around them but they they've said there must be good there's a good reason to put the nest here not up in a tree um, because During one of the problems with the crow nesting period around here in South South East Queensland is it coincides with the storm season, and so something like 35% of all the nests get blown out of the trees during the storm season, and that's pretty bad. But so these nests now tucked in on little places inside, you know, up in tall buildings and things like that, are are completely dry. They're um, protected from the weather. There's hardly any types of predators will ever find them there, Uh, and so that what's happening there is the the pro- productivity if you like the number of chicks hatching successfully and fledging successfully in those city dwelling crows is, is it far exceeds the ones in the in that are living a natural life out in outside and so what's going to happen is there's more and more crows and, and and the baby crows that are raised in a ledge on a ledge in a building will think that's the normal place they will then breed in the same place themselves
0: what experiment did you and some students try to get rid of a whole
1: big flock of roosting crows. Yeah, no, that's right. So every time that anybody would find out that we were studying crows, I would think, we're bloody crows, how do we get rid of them? So there was actually a, a bit of pressure on us to try and come up with something useful rather than just the fascinating stuff that we thought. So what we did was we, I read about this uh, in, had been used successfully somewhere else in the world, probably North America somewhere. Um, and it was to get a large balloon, a big weather balloon, about a metre across, a giant weather balloon, and just put two huge eyes on it. And what we did was we went to one of the largest roosts that we knew about in Mount Gravatt. It was, um, and right on dusk, and so the crows are coming in. They're all settling into the into the lo- last light of the day, and settling in because they're going to go to sleep there that night. And we what we did was we let the the balloon up. It was on a string, but we let it rise until it came to just outside where the roosting crows are, and then they. Absolutely freaked out. <laughs> they, it was incredible. What happens normally, and I've seen it lots of times, when the crows are disturbed by something, like a possum just gets into their, in amongst them or something like that, they all just start cr- crowing and whack, 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 and they'll flap slowly up, but then they'll come back down into the tree and, and it'll settle down. It's just a very sensible sort of, you know, nothing special type of thing. These crows were terrified, I can tell you that now. They leapt out of the tree silently in arrows going straight towards the, the ground and then skimmed away somewhere else. They were absolutely terrified by this. By your giant balloon? By the, by the big balloon. Did they just they come, didn't know what it did was. Did they
0: come back or was well, that we, enough forever?
1: Well, that, those, those communal roosts are used by all sorts of crows. So there was, there was almost no crows the next four or five nights, but then some gradually came back. And I'm absolutely sure that none of those crows that were there originally to experience the night of the balloon would ever have come back to that tree because they would have been terrified for their lives.
0: Imagine what those crows are telling each other. If they had <laughs> talk about the cane toad, you won't believe what happened yeah, at no, Macrobat. Absolutely. <laughs> so as a little... Well, as a teenager, at least, you were interested in trying to understand animals and had, you know, your version of a home zoo. Do you count your evolution as a bird watcher from that age, Daryl? Or how young do you remember taking particular notice of the birds around you?
1: Oh, that, very early. I mean... I spent i was the eldest in the uh, living on a farm, and there was no i didn't have any siblings that were big enough to play with at the time so I used to just go off and live a fantasy life you know just mucking around in the in the bush and so all there were lots of animals there lots of you know there was lizards and frogs and snakes and but especially the birds they were the most conspicuous so they were just fellow animals that i you know i didn't i didn't think of myself at all as being a bird watcher or a or a wildlife person at all I was just I just noticed all these animals and I noticed the things that they were doing. So I was kind of just, it was just a natural for me to to notice what they were doing and to be interested in them and to be curious about it. And that started from a very early age.
0: Aboriginal people were the first and no doubt the best bird watchers in this country. What have First Nations people warned about certain kinds of birds and bushfires?
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, And now this has been verified just recently so that there was lots of stories about mythical creatures or or at least the birds that we would recognise today, but they were given so supernatural kind of features, which is which is a standard for the dreaming type stories. A lot of them have that. But one of them was, was about species we would call the whistling kites and, and also black kites, two common big birds of prey that you give in the tropical part of Australia. And the, the myth was that, they would spread fire. You know, they, they would grab, take fire and spread it to, to burn and assist the local Aboriginal people to burn out the country, which is what you do so that new grass would grow and then they could hunt the kangaroos that were attracted to the new grass. Well, just recently, you know, this has now been verified, it actually happens. Both of those species have been known to go down into bushfires that are occurring in the northern part of Australia, pick up burning logs... And take them ahead of the fire and start another fire over there, or or take them to a place that hasn't already been burned.
0: And why would they be doing that? Well, What's be, the benefit to them?
1: Well, because the, when as the fire moves through the landscape, all the insects and small birds and all sorts of things flush in in the face of the advancing fire. And so that's what they're living on. They're swooping down and grabbing all the insects and grasshoppers and all that sort of things that are come that are fleeing from the from the flames. So it's like, it's a, a really kind of advanced tool use. It's just amazing.
0: There are other information, other kinds of information that humans can get about the environment from watching birds. What does the behavior of yellow-tailed black cockatoos tell us about the weather?
1: Um, yellow-tailed black cockatoos are f- famous for if they start calling a lot in the mornings, as opposed to the afternoons. That means that there's a storm front advancing. It's like they're like barometers. They can tell tell the difference um, atmospheric pressure that's going on, and so they're 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 sort of saying, "Here comes the here comes the rain. This will be useful for us in the future."
0: A lot of the names that. Uh are in uh, English for native bird populations come from Aboriginal languages, but not Rosella. Where, no, does, the, right. where does the name for the Rosella well, come is, from?
1: Yeah, it's strange. You would, you would just think that Rosella sounds like an Indigenous name, doesn't it? But it came from, there's a place in, in Sydney, uh, a, a district in the normal part of Sydney called Rose Hill. And Rose Hill is where the first of these colourful birds were seen. And so they were, what was that bird again? Oh, it was the one up, up Rose Hill way, you know, the Rose Hiller. And so Rose Hill Lure became Rosella. Yeah, extraordinary.
0: So for those of us who don't have your kind of deep scientific knowledge of, of birds and bird life, how tricky can it be to tell different birds apart? I mean, we know crow, although I, was, you know, mm. I don't necessarily know the different kinds of crow, kookaburra, magpie, but, mm. but how else, um, I mean, how tricky is it to tell the other range of birds I might be encountering beyond that?
1: Uh, no, it, it can be a challenge, for sure. Um, it depends on... So if you have the big fat bird guide, there's lots of birds, but the, you're never going to see all those different birds. Um, there might be, you know... A, well, there's, there's, hundreds, there's many, many, many um, honey eaters, for example, all who look very similar. But in any one location, you'll only have two or three. So you only need to know a little bit about either their calls or some feature of their of their plumage or whatever it might be, and then you can tell them apart. So... It doesn't take much, but the calls are very important to know.
0: And so for your, this field guide, Daryl, I mean, has it got every bird in Australia? No, no,
1: not at all, no. It's literally about the local birds wherever you live. It's intentionally not all the nearly 800 birds that live in Australia. Most of the, a lot of those species will never be seen in, in the city. So we, what we did was we took where 80% of the population lives, and that's in the 20 biggest cities, starting from Sydney and going all the way down to Ulbira-Wodonga, I think is the 20th one. Those people living in all, in all those cities represents nearly everybody in the country. So we wanted to make sure that the birds that you, that any of those people in any of those places would, would see, you know, on a walk in the in the morning or in, in the backyard would be, would be included in this, in this list.
0: That's such a spread of cities, you know, in such different mm. climates. We're such a big country. Mm. Are there different birds in every place or are there some that pop up? Yeah, in, there, all, in that whole are, range,
1: there are different birds in in probably every place. That you would expect there will be totally different birds in Darwin and Perth and Hobart for sure. But the, I think this is the thing that surprised me the most because I'm supposed to be the expert on urban ecology and urban birds, especially. But I had no idea. I thought maybe there's a few birds that are common across the board. There were 34. There were 34 species which which occur in every single city. So that means a bird can cope with the the humidity of Darwin, the freezing winters in Hobart, the dry, you know, dry summers of Perth. And every other place as well.
0: And is that because the urban environment is is a more strong feature than any of those climactic differences for well, those you, birds? Well,
1: you'd think that the climate would make a big difference. But, yes, no, these these birds are actually the the birds that are adapted to urban environments very strongly, no matter what the habitat, what the um, climate is like. But it's extraordinary. There's these birds that in that list... Uh, absolutely indicative of the extraordinary ability to adapt to changed uh, environments.
0: What's your favourite bird, Australian bird to spot in your backyard,
1: Daryl? Um, well, I, I, it is the spangled drongo. There is actually a bird called the spangled drongo, which is hard to believe. Um, <laughs> is that
0: where we get this great slang term "you're a drongo"
1: from? Yes. Now, are well, they that, stupid
0: that's... these dron- spangled drongos?
1: Yeah. Well, the drongo word actually. Refers to a racehorse that never won a, <laughs> a won a won a thing. Um,
0: and what do you love about the spangled drongo?
1: Well, they are so full, irrepressibly full of life. They're just you know, they're they're always on the move. They're jumping around, having a great time. They seem to be the the epitome of um, living life well. I really love them. Can you give me a sound? They're they're just like, like you know like like a strange disco going off, crazy stuff.
0: broadcast broadcast this is conversations with Sarah Konoski hear more conversations anytime on the ABC listen app or go to abc.net.au/ conversations. Daryl, as I I mentioned at the beginning, we've had this crow turning up who I really like and my son really likes, and we have been feeding it bits and pieces. Does that mean I should go and stand in the corner with my head hung (laughs) low in in making this admission, or am am I not alone in this? You, You are
1: definitely not alone, Sarah. This is, it's a very controversial issue in Australia. Australia is unique in the sense it's the only country in the world where there is this attitude that you really shouldn't be feeding the birds. But that is juxtaposed against the reality that actually millions of people are feeding birds. How
0: did you first realize that there was this widespread if secretive bird feeding happening in in this country?
1: Well, if you're an urban ecologist, you're out there all the time looking at what the birds are doing and you can't help but notice. Oh, those birds are what have they got? Not, that doesn't look like a worm. And you follow where they've come from, and you find a you know yet another feeding station that somebody's put out.
0: Was it hard to get people to admit to you that oh, they, they were absolutely. feeding wild they, birds? They,
1: if if you're if you're silly enough to try and seek advice about what you should be feeding your magpies or whatever it might be, you will get absolutely hammered by everybody under the sun, especially, you know, the council or the rangers or whoever it might might be. And they will say, what do you mean? You shouldn't be feeding birds at all, you know, because it's a dreadful thing and they'll all die of starvation or whatever it might so be. So
0: what are the arguments against feeding birds before well, there, we, we there talk are, about
1: my see There are good reasons to be concerned about it. That's for sure. What the Principal one is that it can spread disease when we put food out in one location and lots of birds come to visit us and lots of species come to visit that lo- one single location. That is nothing like nature, there's ne- that never happens in nature in one place every day, predictably for all, all time. So that's strange. But if any birds are sick, that's where the infections will spread. It's, it's guaranteed to just work terribly. Well, then so, I- we
0: shouldn't do it. Is that what no, you're No, I'm me?
1: not saying that at all. If we want to do it, we, if we want to, do, want to feed birds, we have to do it sensibly and with, with responsibility. And that means being ruthlessly, scrupulously clean all the time. So if you've, got a, if you've got a platform feeder, which is just a flat surface where you put food, that the birds can walk on and then potentially um, poo on the same site, you've got to keep it clean. So every single day, clean it off, wash it down with vinegar. Vinegar is a good, simple thing to use. And then put the dry food on the top. So that's, you can do that. And that's okay.
0: What kind of food, you say dry food, what kind of food is okay to feed wild birds and what shouldn't we
1: Well, it's a, it depends on what your birds are. And so in Australia, the most commonly fed bird is the magpie and the most commonly food, the most commonly source of food that we provide for them is mince. You know, um, just standard cheap old mince that you get from any, any old butcher. And unfortunately, that's a really bad type of food. It's, Why? It's got no calcium in it. And if they eat too much of that, they will. They need all. All, all animal bodies need lots of calcium to build their bones and, and and feathers in the case of birds. And if they can't get a suitable source of pro, of calcium, they will start withdrawing it from those areas of their of their body and become weakened and, and even you know th- and fragile. Now that only is going to happen if there's a huge if the if the birds are eating up mostly that the mince. Now thankfully that's not the case because the second big concern that people have. Apart from the, the spread of disease, is dependency. That they'll, if we start feeding the birds, they'll just forget out how to find their own food, and and then they'll, and then we'll never be able to go on holidays again because we're completely they're reliant on us. Thankfully, that doesn't happen. Um, the really, magi- absolutely, this is the important, a really important thing to to know. And there'll be people out there who who need to hear this who haven't, literally, haven't been on a holiday because I think if I go away, the birds will all starve to death because they, they need me to, to um, f- provide the food.
0: So how much, how important is the food that humans give birds in their diet? I mean, does it ever replace the the hunting or foraging it, it, that in, birds would
1: do? In almost, it almost never is. It, it almost is, it, well, I like to think of it as a snack. Um, the, at least on average across many different species that have been looked at, 70% of the food that they will get, and this is the birds that feed the feeders. So they might come to your feeder and take, take whatever's there, but 70% of their diet, we did this very detailed, in very detailed way with magpies, 70% of the diet was still completely natural. Now they, And I like to think of it as a cup of tea and a Tim Tam, you know, a, a quick chat, and then they're on their way back to the natural food that they were feeding. So even if they're turning on.
0: up every day, it's not foundational to not their at health all, no. and well-being. By
1: the time we we are up, um, they've already been out for an hour um, feeding on natural food. So that's really important to know. So they, they, there's no evidence that become dependent on us, which is fantastic. And and so for all those people who think that they're the only person, you know, they're keeping single handedly keeping the whole population alive they're probably those birds are probably visiting twelve other people in the in the street. The
0: way you describe that daryl is is i don 't know is it something about the way that we want to be important to birds? is that part of what's happening the sort of psychology of humans feeding birds is it is it connected to our projection onto them, rather than just something as simple as an animal turns up and we give it something to eat. What's happening emotionally? Yeah, no. they're,
1: they're, they're, this is a really strong thing because the why, the motivation to understand why why millions of people, including in Australia, like to feed birds is it's a it's it's a detailed thing. It's a lot going on there. But one of the things is that we feel like we need to help if if we possibly could, and that that goes back in in Europe. The origins of this very common practice appeared to be. Um, helping out the starving birds during winter. The birds that didn't um, migrate away, you'd see them on the, you know, the, the uh, snow-covered co- snow windowsill desperately looking in and, and trying to survive. And so people inevitably just felt a humane reach out to try and help them. Well, that's not the case here. When we don't have that sort of severe weather. Um, but you, there is still the thing that the birds seem to be needing me to feed them something and I'm helping out. That's a positive thing, but it's probably not real. They don't need us at all. Everyone could stop feeding tomorrow and the birds wouldn't wouldn't hardly notice.
0: So it's okay to do as long as we do it carefully and aware that it might be more for us than for them.
1: That's right. So it is very important to realise that the feeding is about benefits to us, making us feel good. The birds don't need it.
0: So I don't know of anyone who wants to encourage ibises by deliberately feeding them. You know, these are water birds that were never seen in cities until a few mm. years ago, and now you can't walk anywhere, mm. it seems, in a city without ibises mm. turning up. What's happened?
1: Yeah, no, we, we don't really know. I mean, it's a bit of, it's a, bit, bit of a mystery why suddenly one species of ibis, because there's a numerous species of ibis, but only the one, the, the, the white one, the, the Australian white ibis, now called universally bin chickens um, they decided that they would move into town and they've done that in a huge way and they're very successful at it they've had in the process of doing that they've learned that by necessity that they have to use that big long beak to to do things that they would never have had to do in their evolutionary past they would never have had to extract chips from a chip packet or steal a sandwich from a toddler or <laughs> um, or, or, or reach into a bin and looking, fossicking around for a you know, tossed away hamburger or something.
0: How does the health of those city ibises compare to their comrades? Yeah, well, that's the a good book. question
1: and we, have, we simply don't know. Um, the only study that I know of a similar type was looked, looked at gulls, um, in Hobart, I think it was, and where they compared the gulls that fed a lot on chips and rubbish, you know, that people would provide for them versus the ones that didn't. And there was a really, they, they had terrible cholesterol. They had too much fat in their di- diet. They were overweight, you know, it, it, all things that will be some, familiar to most humans, you know, breeding too much fa- fast food.
0: When you and your team were studying Ibises around inner city Brisbane, how did you go about marking them. So ah, you could tell was, yeah, who Yeah, that was, was interesting.
1: Who. So this was, we, we were working on the urban. When the urban ibis turned up, uh, there was all sorts of dramas. Were, the, the council and the people, like the people who run the, the eateries all, all the way around the place, they were all really concerned sensibly because these crows, these, sorry, these ibis, have got no fear they would land on your on your plate, you know, while you're eating your lunch. So there was all sorts of things that they had to try and do. So we... They asked us to you know, investigate this, what was going on. Are these all wild ibis or are they rural ibis or are they urban ibis or what's going on? So we need to, to mark them. But that's really hard. I mean, you need to know where an individual has been and where it's going and all that sort of thing. And usually the story is you catch them and put a band on their leg and that's the, the standard thing. But we weren't, this was in absolutely in the public's face. If we tried to Catch a bird by the leg and it's flapping and squawking. And I mean, it's, it's,
0: it'd be citizen intervention, it would be they?
1: absolutely. It'd be, <laughs> you'd be you'd be you'd be carted off to the nearest, you know. It would, it would, Trust it me,
0: I'm a bird scientist, yeah. I'm allowed to. No. But that so wasn't going to fly. What did you do we, instead? We couldn't
1: do that at all, so we came up with a, div- a way of marking them without touching them in any way. And we filled up, we got these amazing. I had no idea the technology had moved on so far, really high pressure. Um, water pistols, if you like, super soakers—they're called—and <laughs> and you put huge amounts of pressure in them. And we coloured them different colours. We just got um, cake mix colour, um, and we had green for one place and red for another place, and and, and blue you just for shot at them. I mean,
0: you think people weren't going to think that was weird? Well, I mean, that's we're weirder doing than this, you're catching them by the foot, if you ask no, me. No, we're,
1: we're doing this at the crack of dawn before <laughs> there's, there's only a few, you know, joggers, joggers out uh, <laughs> on their way to to their. Um, Corporate office in town, uh, and and I so so nearly squirted a few of these people who were going past it as I was about to pull the trigger on an ibis.
0: <laughs> and how did the ibis react to being? Well, they coloured? didn't know
1: what was going on. They'd go, they'd be uh, like bewildered for just a moment. What was that? But they didn't even notice that they'd been have a huge splosh of green on their front or now. So, but that was good because it allowed us to to be able to we marked them easily. It was completely harmless, so after six weeks it just faded and it's gone anyway, uh, and the birds didn't know or were up, weren't upset about and it at all. And what
0: did you learn from marking the ibises we, like we that? We learned
1: that there truly is urban, urban ibises. This is a little bit like the crow story. The ibis that hang around in downtown and eat you know, chips and things, those, they are, it's the same story with the feeding thing. Although they look like they spend all of their time um, scavenging and eating rubbish food, they they spend... The first four or five hours of the day, fossicking around on the mudflats and getting all their their natural food. They literally are well. That's, we've got. Well, I'm full now, but let's go and see if we can have a bit of a snack. You know, have an ice cream. Have an ice town. cream and a, and a packet of chips.
0: Are they a bird, Daryl, that we humans just have to learn to adapt to? I mean, are, are there any ways to move ibises on, or no, is it just a species no, we have to? become no, accepting of.
1: We've tried lots of things. The the council has, has tried all sorts of things including trained hawks that would fly down to, on them and all that sort of was thing. Was that successful? That was completely unsuccessful. It was <laughs> well,
0: the ibises weren't bothered by a hawk.
1: No, they were hot. They were really worried about them, but they but there was there's four or five places around central Brisbane where they where they frequent. So if you when they flew the hawk over the middle of middle of Brisbane, you know, King George Square, all the f- Ibis would freak out for sure, but they just fly across the river to South Bank and and wait till the fork was gone and then they go back. So it didn't do anything whatsoever. What what you have to realise is that although they've got a very bad reputation, there's a lot of people that truly love the Ibis. And so there was kind of a a counter-revolution went. As soon as people started calling them bin chickens, out of the woodwork came all the people that revere them and love them desperately and would do anything for them. And the the, the most prominent group were called the disciples of Thoth. Thoth <laughs> is the Ibis god. And so these people were the opposite. They loved them, they came out, that you know, they'd come out and, and, and defend them at all costs. So that's fascinating.
0: Speaking of birds of prey, I think one of the most dramatic and kind of wonderful examples of birds living in cities are a peregrine falcon. Oh, yes. Tell me about where they're nesting and how humans are keeping yeah, a track of th- them.
1: This is amazing because peregrine falcons in the 1960s almost went extinct around the world because of DDT. And it made their eggs really, eggshells really thin. And so when they, when they would sit down on to incubate them, they'd just break and... It, you know, they nearly went extinct, but DDT was eventually um, banned altogether uh, and then they recovered slowly. But what they did was the uh, peregrines... The, there's, there's two main sort of ways to cope with living in the urban environment. One is to carry on doing what you're doing because you're perfectly adapted to the conditions and the other one is to adapt and to do, do something totally different. So the crows that we mentioned earlier, they have worked out a completely different way of living that they, never, they, they naturally would never have done. Whereas the peregrine falcons... Two things: they nest on cliffs. They eat birds in in the air. They hunt birds, if praying in the air. So somewhere along the line, the peregrines went, "Hey, look at these huge cliffs in the middle of all these cities around the world. They'll do us. They're they're fine. They that's a perfect place for them for, for us to nest. And guess what? Just over there, you can see fat, lazy pigeons <laughs> flying around. So that there was food readily it's available. Like Uber so Eats,
0: but self-delivered.
1: It was, it was perfect for them. So they." And all over the world now, and including Brisbane and Perth and Melbourne and everywhere else, there are peregrines nesting in the in the, in the CBD. And wonderfully, there are live streaming um, cameras now on all these places, and lots and lots of people are now really intimately able to see the the family life of a of a pair of peregrines raising some kids. And it's absolutely fascinating.
0: It's high drama. I was just uh, looking before we started speaking at the the Falcon Cam that Charles Sturt University set up with some um, peregrine falcons in uh, in orange, and there's two fledglings mm. and uh, a parent who's bringing back and bringing prey back and forth. And there's all these comments. There, I think there are eight hundred people who are watching at mm. the same time. It's a beautiful mm. example of mm. of humans. Fascinated by these species, absolutely,
1: it? and and it's a good example of uh, the the new technology we now have, which can uh, allow us to see into the secret lives. The, the great thing is the birds don't have any; they're not being interfered with by us at all. There's just a camera there in the corner that they don't even notice. But we're seeing literally exactly untainted, unedited, unfiltered, um, exactly what's going on there. And you can't. That's that's when you realise that. This other creatures, other than humans, actually have family life. They enjoy each other's company. There's love there. There's you know respect there. There's fear there. There's all the usual emotions that we think only humans have and it's not true the animals have those emotions and we can feel really strongly about it so it's a it's a really good positive way to interact
0: one of the beautiful things is watching the fledgling learn like looking at the mm. adult the way it's attacking the prey mm. its head bobbing from side to side you see that brain mm. operating yep
1: yep yep yeah no it's it's just like watching um, you know, toddlers grow up and learn how to do all those How to tear there.
0: apart a pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> it's my favourite thing to watch a toddler do. <laughs> We're talking about intelligent birds, Darrell. Are uh, cockatoos mm. as clever as crows? Yes. Where do they fit on no, the that's, that's pyramid? No, that's extraordinary.
1: So, um, We've known for a very long time that the corvids, all the different species of crows, are very smart. There's no doubt about that. Um, in fact, the you know the, the the standard is to is the New Caledonian crow. Why the New Caledonian crow is so smart compared to all the other crows, no one no one knows. But if you just um, YouTube New Caledonian crow and and then just enjoy what they what are some
0: of the things? Oh, it does? They,
1: they they give them tasks to do. I mean. The, probably the most spectacular one was a juvenile that was taken as an egg from New Caledonia, hatched in Oxford. Maybe it's something to do with being at Oxford. Anyway, they, this thing, this juvenile crow that had never seen another crow of its own, same species, was raised alone. It grew up. And when it was about a year old, they. And they'd been doing, these people had been doing natural experiments. So the New Caledonian crow is famous for having tools. It has a whole suite of tools that it makes itself, carries them around like a Swiss army knife and and does all sorts of things. And they just tried to figure out whether, whether, well, is that innate? Are they just naturally intelligent? What happens if a crow never gets a chance to see what other crows do? And so this crow, this juvenile crow was given a, There there was a a jar with a piece of meat in the bottom and they just put out a whole lot of bits and pieces like bits of wire and all sorts of things on the bottom of the cage. So there's a a jar, a narrow jar with meat on the bottom of it. And this crow went, hmm, picked up a piece of um, wire, bent it into a hook. Put the hook in and took and got the meat out straight away.
0: Fished it out.
1: Twelve minutes, wow. and it had never even seen any of those things before. So that everyone just went, right? This is there is something serious about the New Caledonian crow. We, we've known for a long time that some species of long-lived parrot. The most famous one is the African grey parrot. There's an African grey parrot called Alex who knew 300 words on cards and he would communicate with his keeper by holding up cards saying, I want ice cream now or, you know, all sorts of strange things like that. Um, and and kiers in New Zealand are known to be very smart and there's been lots of experiments done, done on them. But everyone's overlooked, you know, our, 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 our cockatoo, our big long-lived cockatoo, the sulphur-crested cockatoo, which is now common in just about every city in Australia. But what's happened, something weird's going on in Sydney they're, they've learned how to open um, bins and get get at the... Wheelie bins. Wheelie bins, yeah. <laughs> so they, and this sometimes requires a bit of cooperation because, it, you know, they can lift the lid, but only to a certain amount, and then they need another partner to come and grab it and push it over so it opens up at the top. But so there's... The, currently now there is a, a big... It's an arms race going on between the humans that live in Sydney who want to keep their rubbish in their bin because they make a terrible mess when they're trying to get it out. They're just heaving all the stuff that was in the bin out, looking for something that all might be edible. All the property
0: guides and all the champagne bottles in Sydney <laughs> looking for something it can That's eat.
1: That's right. None of those things are very interesting, <laughs> but the um, rotting... Um, prawn. Prawns, prawn from, from the prawn cutlets that were, yeah. There's a whole series of wonderful YouTube things. Just, what just,
0: if humans uh, trying to keep the yes, cockatoos out? Yeah.
1: So the simplest one is put a brick on it. You'll just see the, the um, cockatoos come along and put the head, gently got it and pushed the brick off. The most recent one I saw was somebody had gone, this is it, I've, I've had enough. And so they put, there was probably 12 bungee cords with hooks on the end across, it must have taken half an hour to, to rig it up. And I went, what do you do when you want to actually put your rubbish in there? That's <clears> right. And, and so the, the, the video that you can see, the cockatoo lands on the top, looks and just like looks and goes, Oh, I see. And then just snip, 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 snip. With its beak. With its beak, snip through the bungee cord until they're all open and then it opened the lid, you know. (laughs) And I could just imagine somebody, you know, the triumphant person, you know, thinking, I've finally figured out how to do this, looking through the window and thinking... That little bastard.
0: I have to move. Uh, <laughs> it's one.
1: <laughs> so they're so very they, smart.
0: Are they not a bird we should encourage in feeding, getting back oh, to that? Oh no,
1: that, that's right, absolutely. So it's people have learned this the hard way. So it's pretty irresistible to try and put out a little bit of food for any animal that look you know, looks cocks their their head, looks you in the eye with those bright eyes and say, just a little would be would you wouldn't it, wouldn't you like to just feed me a little bit i think we've all had that experience and it's pretty hard to resist but with sulphur crested cockatoos you must must resist Why? because because they they will hang around and if they and they're waiting for the next handout it, it, it never just is one they want it all the time and there's this happened to my sister, and you know I've got the full bloody details of the whole thing. But they were, and lots of people have got terrible stories well, about. What
0: happened to your sister?
1: The th- well, they started eating the eaves. Her so house, the, her, the wooden eaves. They just chewed, chewed away. So they've got huge beaks, and they have to keep them trimmed, and they all they like to chew on hard stuff. They just chewed the eaves until they're all falling apart. But there are other people who said they had, they had a wooden pagoda that was literally. Absolutely destroyed by the white cockatoos um, because they, they, they were waiting for the food. Is they there
0: anything you can do once that cockatoo's stop, hanging around expecting food? Stop, stop feeding, feeding altogether, feeding yeah.
1: Them. And you'll just have to put up with a bit of damage to your infrastructure until they go away. But you, you must not give in.
0: Perhaps the, the native bird that's happiest in our suburbs is the magpie. Mm. Why does it love our suburbs so much.
1: Um, I often think of the magpies laying around, thinking, "What would it be like when we go to heaven?" You know, and that would be lots of beautiful, soft grass, which is watered a lot, because beneath, just below the surface of the of the soil, will be lots of grubs and worms for us to eat, because that's what we love the best. And that, if that was set, they dream. If that was set in a place where there's just a a, a scattering of trees so we can put up nests and see all around, that would be absolutely perfect. Well, that's what we've built. (laughs) The suburbs of of the world, well, at least in Australia where magpies live, are literally magpie heaven. Um, They've got all the food they need, um, lots and lots of um, trees to put their nests in, absolutely perfect.
0: What kind of feelings do Australians have about magpies? How strongly are are the emotions in your experience, Daryl?
1: In both directions, um, the, when we had the first what's your favourite bird voting in a few years ago, magpies came in f- top. They always come in the first um, four or five. What, of the...
0: what do people love about them?
1: Well, they've got a personality. They, they actually have, you can have a relationship with magpies. Lots of people talk about how wonderful, how absolutely tear-jerking, like sent- sentimentally wonderful it is for the, cro- the the family of magpies to bring next year, you know, this current crop of of babies, over to you, where you've been feeding the magpies, and introduce them almost like so. Here's Mister and Missus Smith. They're the people that provide Mummy and Daddy with all this yummy food. Now you need to know them, and so you can do the same thing when you grow up. And and that's, that's a genuine and thing.
0: Magpies recognise individual humans,
1: and Mag, absolutely, they recognise by our own by our facial features. They can just like we do. They can tell us by our faces. So in the suburbs of the of anywhere you like. Um, There's probably about um, an average of, say, six to ten houses, and that might be 20 to 30 people live in that vicinity. And the magpies have a permanent territory. They stay in one place. So the magpies that live there and live for 20 years or so, they will know all the individuals that live in that patch. They'll see the kids grow up. They'll remember who they are. They know all those individuals.
0: Daryl, before we came into the studio today, you showed me something unexpected on your arm. What's Ah, that?
1: Now, that's a tattoo... It's a tattoo of a a rhinoceros hornbill from Borneo. One of the best parts of my job was taking students to Borneo every year. And this spectacular bird was always there and wonderful to see. Is there
0: any native bird you might get inked on your person? Uh,
1: Yes, I'm going to get the spangled drongo on the other arm. It's coming for sure.
0: Daryl, it is a delight to speak to you and learn more about our extraordinary birds. Thank you for being my guest on conversation.
1: I'm so glad to be here, Sarah. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.